I'm Alina Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti-Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of the Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. everyone. We're so excited today to welcome onto the podcast Emil Torres, a PhD candidate at Leibniz University Hanover and the author of the forthcoming book Human Extinction, A History of the Science and Ethics of Annihilation. And today we're going to be talking a bit about some of their critiques um, of long-termism um, ideology in the tech industry. Um, so hi Emil, thanks so much for being here today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, so I wonder, you know, a lot of our listeners, I think, will have heard of long-termism sort of in, in passing. Um, William McAskill's book, um, What We Owe the Future, I, I mean, has gotten so much money in promo. I've seen it everywhere. It's like the book of the year or, or, <laughs> or whatever. Um uh, which is which is talking about this ideology. So I wonder uh, if you could just give for the listeners, for, for people who've only heard of, of long term as in passing, kind of what is it? Um, how are they? How are they positioning themselves? Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think, first of all, it's important to distinguish between moderate and radical long termism. And so the 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 version of long termism that McCaskill defends in the book is moderate long termism. The reason that's that he does that is because most people, including some radical long-termists themselves, will admit this. Most people, when they first encounter radical long-termism, uh, find it to be absolutely bizarre and completely uh, unconvincing and uncompelling and so on. Moderate long-termism, on the other hand, is, is just much more palatable. And so, you know, it, it can therefore serve as a kind of gateway drug to, to lead people into <laughs> radical long-termism, or as McCaskill admitted in a blog post, it may be the case that all the radical long-termists need in order to get what they want is for the public to accept moderate long-termism. So there, there's, a, you know, PR marketing strategy matters tremendously uh, to these individuals. And, Hence, there was a conscious effort to go out and market long-termism as moderate long-termism and not radical long-termism. So this is one reason that I believe McCaskill doesn't talk about all of the possible digital people in our in our future. In fact, there was a uh, Reddit Ask Me Anything in which somebody brought this up and claimed that, you know, in they said, in my view, the most important thing, perhaps is ensuring the realization of all these you know, future people in vast computer simulations spread throughout our future light cone, the, the part of the universe that's accessible to us uh, in principle. 
And McCaskill's response, so the guy asked, you know, wh why is it that he didn't discuss this in the book? And McCaskill's response was, was I just ran out of uh, space. But I mean, it's an idea that it, it, suddenly when people understand that one, one of the major uh, impetuses behind this worldview is this notion that there could be, you know, enormous numbers of digital people in the future. So for example, uh, McCaskill, in a paper that he co-authored with his uh, colleague, uh, Hillary Graves, uh, who was at the Global Priorities Institute based at Oxford, which is affiliated with the Future of Humanity Institute, which is founded by Bostrom. They asked, they borrow uh, an estimate from uh, yet another colleague of theirs that there could be, you know, up to, or, or at least 10 to the 45 digital people in the Milky Way galaxy alone. Other calculations like Bostrom suggested that there could be 10 to the 54 uh, human life years within the entire future of uh, of the universe. Uh, and then in his his 2014 book, Superintelligence, which is a bestseller, he estimated 10 to the 58 uh, people in total. And virtually all of these individuals would be living in vast computer simulations. So, yeah, I, when you sort of realize that this is what really matters uh, on their view, then it's it suddenly looks uh, really off-putting, and you know. So, yeah, I mean that's that's um, I think perhaps why people who who will read what we owe the future, uh, they will come away from that book with a view that of long-termism that might make them skeptical of some of the critiques, for example, that I have put out there. But that is merely because of the strategic uh, way that they have McCaskill and his co-authors, because the book was written by on the 15 different people, uh, the way they have chosen to present it. Uh, so, I mean, that, that, in fact, this is yet another reason I would be critical of the long-termist community. Not, not only is the ideology, I think, deeply problematic and founded on very tenuous philosophical foundations, but their whole way of, of you know, trying to evangelize for this ideology is so bound up with tactics of manipulation and, you know, and just strategy over truth. And it's just, it's very, you know, it's very slimy for lack of a better term. <laughs> so, yeah, so hence I've cautioned people to be very wary when they read stuff by these these long-termists that are written for a, uh, you know, a general audience, because those are going to be really, the information that is contained in those articles could be highly filtered. Interesting, yeah. So I wonder, because you've, you've, you know, you're obviously talking about uh, kind of what, what uh, you, you've written about how you used to be an adherent of long-termism, so kind of what what changed your mind about this as an ideology? Yeah, I mean, I, I approached long-termism through the uh, literature on existential risk, and I got to that literature through transhumanism because the you know the notion of existential risk uh, was originally defined specifically in transhumanist terms, you know, by Nick Bostrom in two thousand two in his paper um, "Existential Risk: Analyzing Human uh, Extinction Scenarios or Related uh, Hazards." something like that. I can't remember the exact subtitle, but so that was what introduced um, this, this term, existential risk, which is 
one of the central concepts of uh, of the whole sort of long-termist worldview. And uh, yeah, initially I found the the idea of transhumanism to be troublesome and worrisome. Uh, so basically, you know, one way to think about it is in the late 20th century, uh, there, you know, so, so, you know, following World War II, the, you know, eugenics movement was, had lost a lot of its momentum <laughs> for obvious reasons, but there still were, you know, some eugenicists out there. Julian Huxley comes to mind, uh, you know, within this sort of Anglo-American tradition that was trying to move away from the focus on race and just, you know, a general improvement of the human stock. And, you know, initially the the mechanism by which to enhance uh, uh, hu humanity, to, to improve, um, you know, our, our intellectual abilities, our talents and so on, was selective breeding or forced sterilization or, you know, laws that would, you going back to the early 20th century, that would prevent uh, individuals from different uh, races from, uh, from having children together. And, but really, so then it was in the, the second half of the 20th century that you began to see these technologies like genetic engineering. Um, there was discussion about, you know, advanced molecular nanotechnology, AI, and so on. So people thought like, oh, maybe there's a, a different way of radically enhancing uh, humanity. Uh, it's, it's to merge, you know, the organism and artifact uh, biology and technology. And because of the nature of these technologies, you could um, approach the the general sort of eugenic idea of improving uh, humanity from a more socially libertarian perspective. So it doesn't need to be the sort of state, you know, sanctioned kind of eugenics program, you know, top down. Uh, individuals can choose for themselves. Do I want to, you know, use a brain computer interface to plug my brain into uh, the internet or you know, to modify my genes in some way, or maybe, you know, modify the genes of my children, uh, and so on. And so suddenly you get this, this sort of like the, the new version of eugenics, which is transhumanism, the modern transhumanist movement really emerging in the very late 1980s and 1990s, uh, again, based around this kind of libertarian uh, idea of uh, radical human enhancement, which they called morphological freedom. But here's the thing, Here's the reason that existential risk was defined specifically in terms of transhumanism is around the same time, these very same individuals who were excited about the uh, promise of emerging technologies also realized that these very same artifacts uh, also would introduce risks that are potentially far more uh, devastating uh, than, you know, than the, the weapons uh, you know, chemical, biological, nuclear of the 20th century. And so maybe the 21st century uh, where, you know, the, the uh, nuclear, biological, chemical are sort of, those become lesser risks than those associated with nanotechnology, uh, you know, synthetic biology and, you know, AI. So, they thought, okay, what we want is we, we really want to still develop these technologies because these technologies are the vehicle from where we are right now to this, this techno-utopian transhumanist future that we want to arrive at. Uh, what then, how then do we get there without destroying ourselves <laughs> in the process? And so initially you had this like big debate right around the turn of the century about whether or not these technologies should be developed in the first place. And so you had people like Bill Joy 
who were saying, no, 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 we need to impose broad moratoriums on entire fields because these fields are just too dangerous. And then you have the transhumanists on the other side saying, no, actually what we should do is continue to develop these technologies, but we should found an entirely new field, which is specifically focused on understanding their attendant risks and then neutralizing them. And so that's how the notion of existential risk was born. So you have Nick Bostrom, who was you know, one of the most prominent uh, transhumanists of the century so far, uh, maybe second only to Ray Kurzweil, who's saying uh, the way that we avoid our destruction and get to and ultimately arrive at this techno utopian future is by studying existential risk. Existential risk is any event that's going to prevent us from uh, creating this this transhumanist uh, world. And so, yeah, initially my you know, initially I I the notion of transhumanism and this idea that we, we there's this moral imperative to develop these technologies that could put our species at greater risk than ever of self-annihilation uh, struck me as really dangerous. <laughs> and then I, I read this book that was published decades earlier, 1977, by Langdon Winner, where he, you know, yeah, sort of discussed this idea of autonomous technology. And like maybe the, you know, the enterprise of technologization has no breaks and there's no way to stop it. And so then I thought, well, the best thing perhaps to do is to join the transhumanists and try to, to figure out ways of um, formulating that worldview that because it seems like we're, we're headed that direction anyways. So to, to, to try to then study these risks, these existential risks in order to um, prevent the future from the, maybe the future will be bad in certain ways if transhumanism is realized, which I had always thought, but maybe it'll be much worse if an ex existential catastrophe happens. Because um, many of the existential catastrophe scenarios involve you know, global scale violent catastrophes. Grey goo was one that they were talking about self-replicating nanobots that devour all the organic matter in, in uh, on Earth. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, global engineered pandemic, things of this sort. So yeah, initially, so that you know, then I sort of aligned with the transhumanists focused on existential risk. But I have to say that the more I reflected on the underlying uh, philosophical foundations of this view, which sort of changed over time because initially it was transhumanism and then utilitarianism became this really important element. And there was all of a sudden this focus on, you know, existential risk is not just one that would prevent us from creating this techno-utopian transhumanist future, but also one that would prevent us from colonizing space, uh, you know, terraforming planets, or even more, converting entire exoplanets into giant computers on which we could simulate trillions and trillions of digital people. And all of those people would, assuming that they're happy, would introduce astronomical amounts of value in the future. And so the loss of all that value would be extremely bad. And so the, the, that's how you get this sort of utilitarian element mixing then with the transhumanist element. And the more I thought about those arguments, the, the more deeply problematic uh, they seemed, not just for philosophical reasons, but also because of the practical implications. Because if you think that the most important thing by far in the world is reducing existential risk, understood in this in these transhumanist utilitarian terms, then all the other risks facing us, all of the other you know contemporary problems 
such as global poverty and animal welfare and climate justice and social justice and so on. All of these are just are just sort of pushed very far into the the background, and you know they become you know what Bostrom uh, described as mere ripples on the great sea of life because they just yes they're bad in absolute terms, but when you compare them to what would be lost if we never colonize space and simulate all these people, they're just they're just you know molecules in a drop in the ocean <laughs> of badness. And so then I got, I got very concerned that perhaps this existential risk, which has become the long-termist worldview, uh, could, if taken seriously by people in power, political leaders, our tech oligarchs <laughs> that run the world in very significant ways, if it's taken seriously by these individuals, then the outcome for contemporary or near future people could be really devastating, especially disadvantaged people, especially people in the global South, um, for example, people who are going to be the most um, hard hit by climate change. But, you know, that's bad. But really, take a grand cosmic scheme of things. It's just a tiny little hiccup. It's a little blip. <laughs> it's just not something we should be too concerned about. And so that deeply troubled me. So I wonder, because you've, you've, you know, you're obviously a philosopher, because um, you've written about how, you know, long-termism is obviously very different than the idea of long-term thinking. Um, but but you've you've highlighted how there's a kind of utilitarianism um, at, at the core of, of uh, the long-termism as opposed to long-term thinking. I mean, you mentioned about how this comes out of the effective altruism um, movement. So I was a, an undergraduate at Stanford University in the, the way back in the 2010s. Um, and effective altruism had like bit the the liberal humanities kids. So I was reminiscing um, when I was reading some of your work about like how many people I knew as Stanford undergraduates who were like, I became vegetarian because Peter Singer convinced me to. Um, but also, right. So, so I mean, you mentioned about how effective altruism has this idea, right. That, um, which sounds much like long-termism. It sounds a very intuitive, right. Like it matters um, if people are suffering, no matter where they are or no matter when they are. Um, but then that leads to you know, the effective part of it, which is like, how do you most efficiently, give and so there were literally groups there was one group I, I attended it was called like should you sell out before you do good um which is literally groups of people being like I think we should be financial bankers and then give all of our money away and you think hold <laughs> on wait how did we get from here to here um but so I wonder if maybe you could talk a little bit about like intellectual history of how um where like how does the future of humanity institute at Oxford link to effective altruism? Because Peter, you know, Peter Singer, who's associated with effective altruism, seems to have distanced himself kind of from from this, although he said some problematic things around race and gender recently. Um, uh, so, but how do these intellectual <laughs> movements fit fit together? Yeah, um, great question. It's perhaps worth noting first of all that. You know, long-termism emerged from the effective altruism community. And the before the effective altruism community had a name, they voted on a bunch of different uh, titles for a an umbrella organization that would uh, oversee a bunch of, you know, individual institutes like 80,000 or organizations, 80,000 hours, um, 
and there were some others. But so they were looking for a name of this umbrella organization. And one of the names that was on the list that people, some people might have voted for was effective utilitarian community. So ultimately what they went for was center for effective altruism. That's how the, the term effective altruism uh, became established. The effective altruism movement emerging throughout the, the 2000s and it sort of was officially founded, I think many would say around 20, uh, 2009, when uh, Toby Ward and uh, with some help from Will McCaskill founded Giving What We Can at Oxford. And yes, so the, the main idea was, was, you know, it was inspired by Peter Singer's global ethics. You know, it doesn't ma matter where somebody's suffering around the world. Uh, you should do what you can to help them, especially if you're, you know, in a, a privileged individual in a wealthy country. It's it's your moral obligation to save a child starving, you know, on the other side of the world, in exactly the way that it would, it would be your moral obligation to to go uh, save a, a child who's drowning in a pond, uh, you know, ten feet in front of you. Doesn't matter. So that was the idea. But there's a further question that Singer didn't really explore, which was. How then do you best do that? How do you do the most good? You know, how do you save the most lives? And so this was the central you know, organizing idea um, that inspired the effective altruism community. Grew up around Oxford, you know, maybe to some extent in the San Francisco Bay Area. But it, you know, initially the focus was following in Singer's footsteps was uh, alleviating global poverty. So that's what giving what we can uh, focused on entirely, at least at first. And just one way to understand the, the emergence of long-termism out of effective altruism is that long-termism is sort of what happens when effective altruism collides with Bostrom's arguments about how many future people there could be, especially if we colonize space and create these massive computer simulations. So if you want to do the most good, and if the most people who will ever exist will exist in the future, then maybe the, the thing you should be most concerned with is affecting those future people, including by trying to ensure that they come into existence in the first place, rather than focusing on you know, global poverty. So that's sort of how long-termism emerged. Effective altruism then discovers you know, Bostrom's arguments which were, you know, based on utilitarian uh, reasoning, and then realized like, oh, wait, the best way to do the most good is focusing on, you know, millions, billions, and trillions of years in the future, not on what happens right now. However bad a genocide might be, this is, you know, as Bostrom put it, it uh, you know, global catastrophe that wipes out most of the human population, but doesn't ultimately prevent us from colonizing space, becoming, you know, a superior race of radically enhanced post-humans and simulating all these digital people. That would be a, a great massacre for man, but a small misstep for mankind. You know, Toby Ward and Will McCaskill, both of whom were initially focused on alleviating global poverty and now are out there evangelizing for this worldview to, quote unquote, save uh, all of these trillions and trillions of people who could exist in computer simulations in the far future. Yeah, I think that was the name of the group. Uh, I was at Stanford was, should you sell out before you save the world? Very interesting, problematic assumptions. Um, it reminds me also, if, if I may say real fast, that 
I mean, there, there was a presentation at an effective altruism conference uh, just a couple of years ago where the topic was, is it possible to, to invest in evil to do the most good? <laughs> and so it could be the case that, and the, the individual, so maybe yeah. if I'm remembering off the top of my head, that actually if you invest in oil companies uh, and then you take that, the money you make and spend it on, you know, uh, mitigating climate change, that actually maybe this is the be- one of the best things you could do because if the oil companies continue to be um, very profitable, then your investment's going to be large. And it's precisely because these oil companies will be successful that you need uh, a large um, uh, return on your investment. So the better they do, the more money you get to fight what they're doing. So so it was sort of this reasoning, like, you know, ends justify the means. Yes, it's it's abhorrent to to go and invest in an oil company. But maybe ultimately this is if you crunch the numbers, maybe this is the best way to do the most good. It is so funny, and it, it it does have this very seductive logic, especially at the individual level. Like I'm just thinking of how many numbers of my friends where you're like, you're doing something really problematic, and they're like, yeah, but it makes sense because I can donate money. <laughs> so it is really seductive um, way way of of thinking about things rather than a structural change, which is hard. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the 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 sort of founders of long-termism, um, Eliezer Yudkowsky, who was, you know, a colleague of Nick Bostrom's going all the way back to the to the 1990s. Uh, he had a post, you know, a decade plus, uh, decade and several years ago, where he made the argument that, that ethics should be based on number crunching and that you shouldn't let your emotion yeah. seep into your decision-making. And as he put it, shut up and multiply that was the other thing I was going to say is that the 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 mathematic part of this morality seems really prominent. And I mean, it, it fits in with so much around like the like tech discourse around like, oh, algorithms and math can solve things. Even the kind of quantification of of political science of politics and, and philosophy, um, because you can see again, like it was interesting when talking about the when you had mentioned like the the calculating the numbers of future people, because you can see these men in a room arguing about ethics when really what they're arguing about is a mathematical equation of like whose equation is right for how many trillions of people, and completely ignoring any kind of like more qualitative aspects to the philosophies underlying these assumptions. Um, so the seductive power of mathematics. Um, I mean, it's basically like morality as a, a, a branch, a subfield of economics. You know. Yeah, precisely. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I, I'm. I don't think I haven't actually read anything on the histor on the potential historical link between these these two uh, um, uh, phenomena. But uh, my guess is that there is some kind of connection between utilitarianism and capitalism. I mean, both emerged. Roughly the, the the you know same time. I mean Bentham formulated yeah, Bentham. yeah Bentham formulated the the late you know eighteenth uh, century and and then it was you know early nineteenth century mid nineteenth century that it was developed further. So it was you know this way of thinking about ethics, which is very uh, uh, very mathematical, very capitalistic in certain senses. You know th- this whole notion of death and non birth being intrinsically uh, equal, you know that that is um, bound up 
with this notion of persons as completely fungible, <laughs> which which again is sort of fits with this you know the capitalist uh, uh, worldview where you know you're just manufacturing these project uh, um, products that are just fungible tokens, and so yeah, a lot of parallels between the two and. Uh, and then this historical emergence uh, that is more or less coincidental. Yeah, it's fascinating. So the, the other thing that you've talked about, the like um, the long-termist beliefs is, or, or that like follows from this long-termism ideology is space colonization. Um, and so obviously like I've worked on space colonization. I remember laughing almost to myself because Jeff Bezos said something at a like Blue Origin event when he's talking about like why humanity needs to colonize space. Um, and he says there are short term problems like poverty and pollution. And there are long term problems like the coming energy crisis and stasis <laughs> and civilization. <laughs> I think like what? Like where did this come from? So I wonder, you know, um, you know, so Elon Musk is, is the the person who's been most prominently create a link to, to the long term ideas. He's like tweeted about long termism saying, oh, yeah, this basically conforms to my ideology. But clearly Jeff Bezos is is also um, influenced by them. So I wonder, could you, could you talk a bit about like the the links and why this leads um, uh, to, to space colonization in particular? Yeah, my sense is that there are two issues here. And they're they're interrelated, but maybe distinct. And one has to do with the realization of, as I mentioned before, all of this future value, astronomical amounts of future value. That requires us to spread into space. Uh, and in, in fact, it requires us to spread into space as soon as we possibly can, insofar as prioritizing that doesn't interfere with mitigating existential risk, which of course makes sense, because it's better to delay space colonization and still then colonize space than it is to never colonize space in the first place. So that is, that's sort of one motivation for spreading beyond Earth and flooding our future light cone with uh, digital as many digital people as possible. And then another is this idea that by colonizing space, by making uh, our species uh, multiplanetary, that would be that would safeguard us against extinction. And so perhaps one way to mitigate existential risk is actually to hurry up and colonize Mars. That way, you know, when there's, uh, you know, global thermonuclear conflict on Earth and, you know, there's this multi-decadal nuclear winter and everybody starves to death in sub-freezing temperatures under pitch black skies at noon, then there's there's a backup human population. And you know, at some point later, they can return to Earth once it's not, you know, terribly radioactive, and uh, the human story can can continue. So there, there there's an interesting kind of uh, overlap. Like, yes, maybe it's the case that we need to colonize Mars as soon as possible, or the Moon, or just have free floating, uh, you know, uh, spacecraft, O'Neill cylinders, or you know, is, is one possibility. In fact, O'Neill, speaking of just Jeff Bezos. Um, O'Neill, he was, you know, a, a professor at Princeton. Yeah, uh, that's where Bezos was. Took a course with O'Neill and became inspired by O'Neill's vision of, you know, uh, placing humans out in in space uh, in these cylinders that are rotating to create artificial gravity. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I'm so all of this is to say, I'm not entirely sure about the extent to which Bezos subscribes to the long termist view. But there's clear overlap. Like he he clearly 
thinks it's important to uh, protect humanity from extinction. Also, I think a lot of these billionaires believe it's just really cool to, to go into space and they just, I mean, Musk himself is- That's my that. thought too. I think they're just like, we were yeah. interested in this as kids, so let's just find an excuse. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. Um, I have no doubt that that is part of the impetus behind uh, this this billionaire space race. Uh, I mean, Musk himself has said he wants to die on Mars, just not on impact. So, yeah, I, it, it is, I would say that it's it's a really interesting question what Jeff Bezos thinks about long-termism. Because we, we know that Musk has been greatly influenced by Nick Bostrom's work. Mm. You know, he's, he's, he has cited Bostrom uh, on many occasions. He promoted Bostrom's book, Superintelligence, the bestseller of 2014. Um, he has... You know, he's been obsessed with the simulation argument, which was proposed by by Bostrom, uh, which suggests that, you know, there's a either to simplify a bit, either we're going to go extinct fairly soon or we almost certainly live in a computer simulation right now. <laughs> so, uh, That's I, the rigidity of the predictions, isn't it? Like, I find that I finally, as a political theorist that the tech bros come and they're like, it's this or this. For sure. <laughs> um, but it's so, I mean, what, what strikes me too, though, about like the way Elon Musk talks about the future, or even the way Jeff Bezos talks about the future, is this sort of like, like, uh, it's an uncreativity, right? Because it's it's riffing on old ideas, as you mentioned, like like Gerard O'Neill's. I mean, I think Jeff Bezos very clearly just completely takes Gerard O'Neill's ideas for his his own purposes. Um but but the, but then again, there's like this rigidity. It's like this is what will happen in the future, which is also very. This is kind of my second question to you, which seems sort of at odds with the whole philosophy of long termism, with the idea that like somehow right now we are at a crossroads, and so like our actions will affect future people. But then somehow seems to preclude the idea that future people could also take actions that affect them and the future people that might change the trajectory of that future. So it's either set in stone or it's not. Um, so so I wonder, like, where does this, what is their ideas of the future, like this rigid future? How does How does that kind of fit into this like rigidity about the belief which could be a kind of techno determinism like this is what the future is going to be like fit in with that idea of like we are making the future right now is it just that it's this time this moment is so unique um or is there something i'm missing in how they're they're putting together the argument <laughs> i think that's it. It, it it's um this idea that you know there are a couple of premises to the the long-termist argument one is that future people matter we talked about that before <laughs> you know the it's really important uh that all these future people come into existence in the first place because their failure to come into existence would be just as bad as if they existed and then ceased existing <laughs> so you know it's so future people matter the second um premise is that uh you know there could be a huge number of them which we also discussed and the third one is that there's something we can do to to, to affect them. It's it's not just the this idea that uh, we could do something now to modify their quality of life or ensure that they uh, come into existence, but we could do, our behaviors now could influence them in a way 
that is intelligible to us, that we can predict. And so this gets at the idea that we live at a, at a special moment in human history. You know, the the, the so-called hinge of history, uh, mm-hmm. you know, term that I think Carl Sagan used and Derek Parfit and various others. Um, and so why do we live at this period? So the the main reason, or there are a couple of reasons. One is that uh, if we create uh, superintelligence, it could be the case that once it's created, the values that guide its behavior are not going to be modifiable or not going to be easily modified. So once the whatever values we load into this this ASI, those are the final values. So we need to get them right. And furthermore, that the once an ASI exists, it's it will determine essentially the way the entire future uh, of humanity, maybe the future of the cosmos, unfolds. Um, you know, if it if it then you know spreads into space, launches. Um, you know, von Neumann probes in every direction that just self-replicate and uh, maybe build things in the process like simulations. Um, so, and the, the last thing to add is that the long-termists will cite a bunch of surveys of AI experts. And a lot of these surveys suggest that there's a good chance that within our lifetimes, within the, the 21st century, we will create artificial superintelligence. So the creation of this world transforming the uh, technology, a technology that will not just change the world today, but shape the entire future course of human existence or even cosmic evolution uh, could be created very soon. Mm. And so that's one reason we live this hinge of history, this really important moment. And it's by virtue of the fact that we can shape the values that are loaded into this ASI uh, and therefore uh, through that influence the sorts of lives that all future people live. That makes it really important that we uh, um, focus on this particular problem right now uh, and prioritize this problem, maybe over other things that are maybe very bad, but in the grand scheme of things, trivial, like climate justice and, you know, things of that nature. So that's one reason. I think the the other reason is that we seem to be on the cusp of colonizing space. And there's this idea that maybe once the process of space colonization is initiated, that also will then, um, not only will our descendants or our you know machinic descendants, if not biological, uh, propagate in every direction, but along with them, our values or whatever values, you know, they, they start out with. Mm. And so this is why uh, we live at this absolutely critical moment in human history and why it's really important that we prioritize thinking about the very long term. So, I mean, that's that's sort of the argument. There are lots of potential problems with it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, that's such a, because it was so interesting when you were, when you were talking there um, one of the things that really struck me about the long-termism, like rhetoric about future people and bringing future people, and then even even when you were talking about like um, like the values we must impart to those those future people, um, is how similar it is to the anti-abortion rhetoric, right? And so this idea of of 
you know, uh, controlling women's, or controlling people who can get pregnant, like their basically reproduction and, and the way that that, you know, that's framed as like, oh, you're preventing life against essentially from coming um, into the world. Um, and and then, of course, obviously, you mentioned about the way that transhumanism comes out of the eugenics movement, which, again, is also really interested in reproduction, um, as well as race, race, you know, so all, all these things kind of intersect. Um, so you've, you've, you've noted in your writing that this is a pretty male dominated group. Um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the way that like gender and white supremacy sort of um, uh play into into the long-termism because it seems very much like a continuation of of old ideas and very conservative ideas. Yeah, I think one philosophical difference between the uh anti-abortion crowd and the the long-term is who you know are uh overwhelmingly either utilitarians or utilitarian leaning. Uh all of the major figures have said that. But Bostrom hasn't but I mean he's presented arguments that are utilitarian uh, that support you know the the existential risk framework that he does in fact accept but yeah toby ward will mccaskill all of them said they're they're utilitarian leaning um is that whereas the anti-abortion people the reason that they oppose abortion is has to do with the sacredness of life you know and life uh begins with conception which is a weird way to put it like of course the the you know the the two cells uh, at the point of syngamy, you know, are living, yes. But, but you know, they, they really, they mean like, you know, personhood or something uh, of that sort, uh, where personhood might be linked with sacredness. So you're, you know, you're sacred by virtue of your, your uh, being a person. And the, util, the utilitarians have a very different view. There's nothing sacred about life at all. The only thing that matters is the total amount of intrinsic value. So, and again, if you interpret that as happiness, then you could rephrase that by saying the only thing that matters to them is a total amount of happiness. It doesn't matter where that happiness comes from. It doesn't matter, um, you know, ha uh, how exactly it's it's maximized. Um, what just what matters is that there's the greatest amount uh, in the universe as possible. So this leads them to views like. Uh, you know, Peter Singer, for example, famous utilitarian, has been, you know, quite open to the notion of infanticide. Um, there's nothing wrong with, you know, abortion. Like, for example, if the kid is is going to um, bring more disutility than utility or disvalue than value into the world, then you should abort that, that kid. <laughs> um, you know, so uh, many of the utilitarians have been uh, criticized for a kind of extreme ableism, <laughs> you know, because there's been a lot, you know, Peter Singer is kind of one, I don't know his philosophy uh, extremely well, but I know that he has been enmeshed in these <laughs> controversies about like, well, if you're going to have a child who is quote unquote disabled, maybe it's better to abort the fetus. Um, and I know th this, be he became sort of famous or infamous uh because of his views on infanticide and disability in, I believe it was the 1980s when he gave a talk in Germany, which is where I am. And given the history of Germany, there were huge protests of people saying, no, 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 this is a really effed up view. 
that you've got. Uh, we should not be aborting fetuses because they might uh, have a, a, you know, quote unquote disability. It is eugenics. Yeah. That's exactly it, it's, it's eugenics from, you know, whereas I guess the eugenicists, a lot of them were really concerned. I mean, a lot of them were associated in some way with utilitarianism, but also were sort of concerned with like, just, you know, improving the human stock in a way of like, you know, increasing the excellence of our species, preventing degeneration of our species. There were many going back, uh, you know, to the previous uh, two centuries uh, following Darwin, who, you know, saw other races. Uh, as soon as he had the theory of evolution, they thought, oh, well, now we can make sense of other races. They're, they're yes, they're human, but they're just degenerate forms. And it's really horrendous views. So I, I think that's where the eugenic view was like the utilitarians, they just want to maximize value. And, you know, if that means removing uh, individuals who have a negative value or or preventing them from coming into existence in the first place, then that is one way to, to maximize total value. You know, if you add a bunch of, of fungible units that have negative utility, you're going to decrease total value. Um, because total value is the difference between positive and negative value. So I I, I think the the views are and again going back to the abortion people where they saw they see life as sacred, um, and that's why you should you know have the child uh, if you're if you're pregnant. Um, the util the you know long termists and the utilitarians want the population to grow, but but maybe. The, the, but the fun, the underlying reason they want the population to grow is because they want value to be maximized. For that exact same reason, you would want to abort children who are going to have you know negative value, all things considered. So it's it's there are definitely similarities, and uh, one could imagine there being some kind of melding of the anti-abortion movement. And, you know, a version of long-termism uh, where they just tweak some of the, you know, the yeah. underlying views and they're saying, yes, you know, McCaskill's out there right now saying you should go out. Maybe he doesn't say it quite that strongly, but it, it is good if you do a good thing, if you have more children. Uh, and so, yes, that rhetoric is, is, is really similar to the, the anti-abortion kind of rhetoric. Yeah, it's really interesting. So we were actually talking about this on on last week's podcast, which is about Roe v. Wade and surveillance tracking and and reproduction, um, because uh, you know eugenics starts also in in the valley. So Stanford is um, you know the epicenter. I mean, California had the largest forced sterilization um, program in the United States. Germany, Hitler's Germany, modeled their forced sterilization. Uh, program off of California's and so if you I I was I was struck by it as well because if you think about um not just anti-abortion but control of re of reproduction you know so you have forced sterilization on the one hand but then actually in the post-war period Paul Popino who was a Stanford student um you know eugenics was out of vogue after World War II uh for obvious reasons because it had just been so horrible and realized that okay forced you know he had been really um, instrumental in the forced, California's forced sterilization movement realized, okay, public opinion's not on my side and actually moved to better baby contests and, and the, um, and became like one of the first like public marriage counselors, like the original Dr. Phil to like 
help <laughs> more births along, you know, so it's this really fascinating history that the two, you know, so there's the two sides of the coin. There's like preventing unfit births and then there's the like encouraging fit births. Mm-hmm. And so, and I was struck by this as well. So, so this is, you know, a long-winded question, but um, uh, because uh, Elon Musk also, you know, has very strange views on reproduction, is very worried about underpopulation, has a variety of children with a variety of people through a variety of methods. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, so, so so I wonder, Dr. Timnit Gebru, I saw had, had been engaging in your critiques and tweeting about this and 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 had said something about long-termist resembling eugenicists. So I wonder, um, beyond just like say control like anti-abortion do you think long long-termism is uh, is is eugenics or uh, uh, is like eugenics has links to eugenics like how would you characterize that that relationship between the two yeah it definitely has has roots um in the anglo-american uh eugenics uh, tradition which as you mentioned i mean that was that inspired the Nazis, you know, and I believe that program in California didn't didn't it continue until 1979. Uh, yes, you know, it was only forced sterilization. The program was was the 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 massive amounts of state issued forced sterilization happened um, in like the early 20th century, but California only outlawed forced sterilization in 2015. <laughs> So I've been continuing to forcibly sterilize, often without, like, even informing people, both men and women, um, but women who gave birth in prison often found that they had been forcibly sterilized, like, both without their consent as well as knowledge. So, (laughs) long roots, big trees, big trees. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Also, you had mentioned, um, uh, you know, Stanford right and you know mm-hmm. so, so just geographically I mean Oxford also <laughs> was sort of an epicenter of the Anglo-American uh eugenics program Julian Huxley was there um uh Robert I think his first name was Moeller uh you know who did some pioneering work on uh on you know the human genetics um and I believe actually won a Nobel Prize, but anyways, yeah, Oxford. It, I mean, there, there's there's a geographical link as well. So you know, you had a, eugenics in the 20th century at Oxford. Now you've got transhumanism and long-termism there. So I, I definitely think that long-termism has roots, and I think there are residues that persist, have persisted from uh, from uh, eugenics through transhumanism into long-termism because again, long-termism grew out of, you know, transhumanist concerns about creating these technologies in order to radically enhance ourselves. Um, in fact, you know, the term transhumanism was popularized. A lot of people think it was coined by Julian Huxley, but it wasn't, it was just popularized by him uh, in the second half of the, the 20th century. It, it's, I, I think that the connections are fairly robust, but I mean, maybe one way to think about it is, is it's not that long-termism is like a distinct ideology. It's kind of what you get when, or at least part of it is what you get when the eugenics tradition persists, but then you peel away 
different, you know, well, this aspect of it is problematic. So let's get rid of that. This aspect is probably. And so there, you end up with these kind of residues um, that are, I think, apparent once you start to understand the genealogical history. Um, you know, when you view certain calls to action uh, from a through a eugenics lens, they don't look problematic. So, for example, if you say what we should be doing right now is helping the global poor, or we should be thinking about climate justice, and you might think, well, you know, is there any way that could be eugenic? It's like, well, it's hard to, to see how. When you view McCaskill saying to his his overwhelmingly white audience, if it reflects the EA community, which is overwhelmingly white, it would be good if you had children, <laughs> you know, because we should be worried about underpopulation. Uh, then when you view that through the lens, it suddenly becomes like really disturbing <laughs> and yeah. really problematic. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, so it's, it's not that his statement, it's not that that statement itself is... Uh, an expression or an articulation of the idea of eugenics, but I mean it's it's a, a reverberation of <laughs> this idea. For example, the long-termism that you get, the moderate form in McCaskill's book, is an improvement in many ways over the more radical long-termism you get back in the early 2010s. And then in the 2000s from Bostrom's work. So a couple of examples, 2013, the long-termist Nick Beckstead published his PhD dissertation, which is widely seen as one of the founding documents of long-termism, in which he defended this radical long-termist view. What really matters, what is of overwhelming importance, is how things go millions, billions, and trillions of years from now, quoting him. Uh, and he said, you know, he, he realized at one point and then stated this explicitly that an implication of that is that if you have to choose between, uh, and we do because we have finite resources, if you have to choose between saving the life of somebody in a rich country versus saving the life of somebody in a poor country, it's better to save the life of somebody in a rich country, which makes sense within this framework because people in rich countries are going to be better positioned to you know, influence the, the long-term future than people in poor countries. As he says, richer countries have more economic productivity, um, you know, there's more innovation and so on. So again, when you sort of look, view that then through the lens of eugenics, you're like, okay, yep, that seems. <laughs> that fits. <laughs> that fits. That fits. That's, that's shocking. And, yeah. and, you know, maybe it's not like, it's not what, you know, uh, Julian Huxley was saying. It's not what the, the, the eugenic, you know, Nazi eugenicists were saying uh, or Francis Galton, but it's like clearly really problematic. And then if you go back even further, you get more explicit statements of eugenics, uh, like in Bostrom's 2002 paper that I mentioned earlier, which talks about existential risk, where he says that one of the existential risk scenarios alongside nuclear holocaust, uh, you know, uh, uncontrolled self-replicating nanobots, uh, solar flares, and so on, is uh, dysgenic pressures. With the, the term dysgenic, uh, I haven't actually looked at the history of that, but I know that that was used by uh, eugenicists. And the notion of, of dys dysgenic pressures is, as Bostrom explains, it could be the case that, quote unquote, less intellectually talented individuals outbreed 
uh, quote unquote, more intellectually talented people. And so as a result, you get a species uh, just through, you know, uh, natural ev evolution, uh, you, you know, differential uh, birth rates. You get a, a new species that he called uh, Homo phyloprogenitus. Homo phyloprogenitus, I believe, was the term he used, which is you know lover of of many offspring, and, and you know, so basically you get just this less smart human population, but they're much more fertile. And so yeah, this I mean that is that is a eugenics worry. <laughs> that, yeah, that, you know, intelligence. You know, measured by IQ or whatever. A lot of a lot of people in the EA community are obsessed with IQ as it happens, which is again another thing when you look at that. Eugenic, the... yeah, exactly. Eugenics invention. Yeah. Used so the, in the no... forced sterilization project. Yeah. So I mean, this is it's there has been um an evolution of long-termist thinking over time that has gotten better, to which I would say keep it going. <laughs> You've got a long way to go. It's the view that McCaskill is out there promoting is so much better than what Bostrom, uh, you know, delineated, which is worse than what, you know, Beckstead said, or, you know, maybe they're in the same kind of neighborhood. But, you know, those older versions are, are like just so patently problematic in various ways. So there has been progress in that sense. I would say long termism is is not so overtly eugenic. In its approach and Maybe that's a, in the really long-term future they won't be eugenicist anymore I mean, it really is worth emphasizing that when you look at the the roots of these views they uh are very much in the soil of eugenics of eugenic thinking and so in that sense i think you know gabru is not wrong when she sounds the alarm that like this is you know it, it's it's a kind of newer iteration it's a little bit better in certain certain respects but it's still bad <laughs> and still very worrisome uh and yet this is exactly the the ideology that uh for for good reason that you know these billionaires are accepting because they you know like you said you know musk has been very concerned about underpopulation in particular i remember there was a tweet he mentioned that CEOs in particular have fewer children than the average uh, American, and that he found this very alarming, which is obviously just a super elitist, uh, yeah. elitist claim that makes all sorts of false assumptions, like you know, intelligence is heritable, yeah. you know, or is there some genetic component to, to, to that? Obviously, there is some genetic component, but that it's it can be, uh, you know, there's it's genetically determined in some really important way, which there's no evidence of whatsoever. Yeah, uh, and that's and that CEOs are intelligent, which are more intelligent. <laughs> the than most worrisome of the assumptions CEOs being intelligent. I, I don't know. No, I've, I'm also really struck by uh, Elon Musk's, you know, talking about the the reproduction of intelligent people, which is often just a code for the reproduction of white people. So the other thing that I was just going to add really quickly is the the. Um, you know, we had um, Dan McKillen on a few episodes ago talking about fascism and AI. Uh, you know, Elon Musk is, talks about being concerned about, you know, super intelligence, but he's also like enamored with Werner von Braun, who was a Nazi, who was also trying, you know, to colonize space. So again, there's like the colonial and fascist origins of a lot of um, uh, their their ideas. 
Um, so I was wondering the framing around a lot of the, some of the ideas that long tourism comes up with, like particularly I'm thinking about space colonization, um, is often framed in this like libertarian exit framing. So I just finished um, Survival of the Richest. You know, it's just about all of, you know, the Peter Thiel's apocalypse bunkers and uh, space colonization. But it's all all framed all the framing is um, interestingly about apocalypse, right? And I, I was struck by how much like apocalyptic thinking is present in long-termism as well as, you know, across Valley Peter Thiel, but also figures like Dominic Cummings here in the UK, Newt Gingrich, like apocalypse really features. Um, but, but, but these things like space colonization is often posited as ways that like rich people can kind of exit apocalypse um, and save themselves. But long-termism seems to posit space colonization again as the opposite right like it's the way that we save the most amount of people even though those people are in the future so i wonder where does like that kind of like exit that we're used to kind of talking about libertarianism in silicon valley feature in in long termism yeah it's a really interesting question um might be worth mentioning just briefly that you know like many religions. I mean, it, it should be emphasized that you know, everything is like everything else in, in some respect. But there are significant, I think, you know, substantive ways that long-termism is like a religion. A lot of the, uh, well, the, the, you know, the Abrahamic faiths in particular, uh, the, they are, you know, both apocalyptic and utopian. You know, there is this apocalypse that we expect in the future. Uh, and then beyond that, there's utopia. Long-termism is, is very similar uh, in that, you know, there maybe the development of superintelligence is a great example of this. I mentioned it's binary. You know, it's either utopia or apocalypse. But this, there's a, then a secular interpretation of apocalypse, which coincides with human extinction or something of that nature. So there's there's nothing beyond the apocalypse, uh, unlike in religion. But anyways, it has those those elements to it. And um, and anybody who I think has, has studied apocalyptic religion might find that worrisome. Because there, there's, you know, the, these sort of apocalyptic views um, have driven all sorts of, you know, wild violence uh, in the past, in moments of crises in particular, when they switch from this passive to this active mode, uh, which then motivates people to engage in violence for the sake of realizing, you know, uh, all sorts of value in the future, infinite value. Whereas in the case of long term, it would be uh, astronomical value. But anyway, so the, the 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 issue is that I think um, on the one hand, it's actually there's a, a book written by um, uh, international relations theorist Daniel Dudney, which I don't know. Dark skies, yeah. Yeah, and so that I think does a really good job. It's not fresh in my mind uh, at the moment, but it does a good job of laying out how there have been different ideological visions of space colonization. Some have been socialist. You know, but definitely there's the the libertarian strand, you know, that, uh, that you know, in fact, also is precisely what motivates Peter Thiel's notion of seasteading. You know, we'll just create these these cities that are just floating on the ocean, and then they're, they are completely outside of the um, jurisdiction of any state. And so they can be these libertarian, <laughs> you know, paradises where there's just no rules. And same goes with, you know, colonizing space. Um and so, yeah, one, uh, I think, idea is that it's sort of what you saw at the end of Don't Look Up, which is, 
which is that you've got the, you know, the billionaires are these elite uh, individuals who are all extremely intelligent and just just overall just kind of better, more valuable humans. That's what they would say, or or many would no doubt think. And so, you know, if if maybe they can uh, start some colony elsewhere in the solar system or elsewhere in the galaxy, then um, they would constitute a, you know, a founder population. And from that population would emerge uh, a race of you know, elite individuals, the best of humanity. And so, you know, that's, uh, yeah, it, it's a vision that I have no doubt inspires some of them. But yes, I think you're right that it's 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 there. There is at least a possible tension with the specific long-termist, especially the radical long-termist uh, impetus for uh, colonizing space, which is just to create uh, as much value as possible within our future light cone. And perhaps it's the case that each group sees each other as useful. And there's there's a, a certain overlap of short-term goals that you know we want to get out, out to space. Um, and so you could imagine perhaps each using each other to try to get <laughs> what they ultimately want. I think there are um sort of two broad classes of um possible consequences of widespread adoption or just adoption of long-termism by individuals in power. And one is is causing harm by neglecting problems. And the other is causing harm uh, actively by perhaps engaging in what might be described as atrocities for the sake of the greater cosmic. When I hear people like Jan Talon, uh, you know, who is a long-termist himself, co-founded Future of, of Life Institute, which is a long-termist organization, co-founded Center for the Study of Existential Risk at Cambridge, uh, which is where you are. When you hear him say, as he did to CNBC, I believe, um, just, uh, I think it was last year, that climate change is not going to be an existential risk, unless there's a runaway scenario, which seems very unlikely. When you hear him say that, um, or when I hear him say that, that is very alarming, because from the radical long-termist view, that immediately suggests that climate change should not be one of our top priorities. It's just, it fades to to nothingness from this grand perspective. So when I hear Jan Talon say that, it's very alarming. Um, and, the, you know, there, there are many quotes from Bostrom's uh, uh, oeuvre uh, as well, you know, that that suggests that, you know, these these genocides in the past, you know, world wars are, are you know, again, to, to quote him, you know, mere ripples on the great sea of life. Um, they're bad in absolute terms, but in relative terms, they're they're nothing. The the other thing is that if you take seriously this idea that there could be astronomical amounts of value in the future, it it may actually be entirely justifiable on this view to commit atrocities uh, in order to realize this you know technotopian future amongst the stars. So obviously, there are many examples of this sort of reasoning, you know, a kind of utopianism paired with a utilitarian mode of moral reasoning that have led to all sorts of horrors. Um, I mean, even, even, you know, Nazism, the way Hitler presented it was very utopian. It was very eschatological. Uh, you know, he talked about it in the thousand year Reich, 
you know, which is sort of modeled on, uh, or at least it has, it, presumably it's modeled on this Christian notion of, you know, the, the millennial kingdom. It's, it's infused with, uh, you know, very impressive looking mathematical calculations and, you know, some, uh, well, I'm trying to think of if I would describe it as sophisticated, but, you know, somewhat sophisticated sort of philosophical argumentation, you know, about, you know, from population ethics and, and it, it looks, it looks very impressive, but I mean, it's just a, another version of the same sort of thinking. So, you know, these are not just sort of idle areas that don't have any connection to uh, reality. I mean, human history is full of people who have had utopian views and reasoned in a kind of utilitarian way where the ends justify the means. And so we know that that can be super dangerous. And that is the core aspect of radical long-termism. And in fact, I mean, Bostrom himself in his 2002 paper, um, you know, is explicit that uh, preemptive violence should be left on the table as a potential means to, to obviate an existential risk if one were about to happen. So Bostrom himself has <laughs> suggested that preemptive violence might be an ex a morally acceptable way of ensuring that we ultimately colonize space. So this, these are these are the sorts of ideas that are being taken seriously um, by you know leading long termists. And I mean that was published in a policy journal. So it's it, it's th this wasn't a mere sort of thought experiment in some you know obscure philosophy journal that was in a policy journal that is uh, published in order to influence uh, public policy. So really, th there are many reasons that I'm very, very worried about the dangerousness of this ideology. <laughs>